Welcome to the North Bryant Baptist Church Podcast. On this podcast, you will find many of the sermons preached from North Bryant Baptist Church, primarily from pastors Matt Thornton, Connor Harris, and Doug Birch. We're currently celebrating 25 years at our current location, and we would love for you to come and worship with us. Our Sunday school begins at 9.45 a.m., and our worship services begin at 10.45. For more information, please visit us online at northbryantbaptist.org. Open your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Have you ever read a newspaper article or maybe saw a news report on television and you thought, I don't know if I'm getting the whole truth here. Something seemed a bit off. Maybe you weren't sure what it was, but eh, something was a little sketchy. Some people would call that slant. Some people call it propaganda. Some, another term is spin journalism. Uh, one author defines spin as the shaping of events to make you look better than anybody else. And he says it's an art form now and it gets in the way of truth. This has been around for thousands of years. Wicked men have always spun things against God's people. Even when they were not the problem, they were labeled as such. I want you to consider two biblical examples of that. At the beginning of the book of Exodus, there was a Pharaoh who arose who, if you remember, didn't know Joseph, and he labeled God's people as the problem. Even though they weren't doing anything wrong, they were doing nothing to upset the Egyptian society, but Pharaoh feared their numbers, and he persecuted them. In the book of Esther, there was a wicked man named Haman, and he told the king, of Persia that the Jewish people are a problem throughout the whole empire. Now they weren't. They weren't doing anything to upset Persian society. They were causing no trouble. But Haman hated one Jewish man named Mordecai who wouldn't bow down to him. And he spun that into a empire-wide decree to annihilate God's people. Throughout history, Wicked men have pointed their fingers at God's followers and said, those people are the problem. we got to get rid of them. If we can get rid of them, well, the world will be so much better. Even when God's children were doing nothing wrong, nothing immoral, nothing unethical, but their lives, their beliefs, their service to God threatened this world. And so people spin it and they present those people as a threat. And the same thing happened to Paul in Thessalonica. We're going to see that this morning. And as we dive into this, I want you to be encouraged by Paul's faithfulness and Paul's persistence to keep serving God even when the world was against him. We need to have that same faithfulness and persistence personally and corporately as a church. We must be persistent in our service to God even if this world labels us as the problem. So let's look at Acts 17. We're actually going to begin in verse 4 where we left off last week, though. Before we consider the trouble Paul faced, we're going to talk a little bit more about the blessings that God gave him while he was in Thessalonica and talk a little bit about these groups that believed and how this church was established. So let's just read verse 4. Luke writes, And some of them believed. And consorted with Paul and Silas and of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. When Paul says that some of them believed, that refers to the group of Jews in the synagogue who 
who were persuaded and convinced and convicted here and believed. And we're specifically told that they consorted with or they joined with Paul and Silas. The idea is sort of neat. It's that they cast their lot in with Paul and Silas. And I'm sure the same could be said about the Gentiles, that they joined in with Paul and Silas. But we're specifically told about, uh, about the Jews here because when a Jewish person trusted in Jesus Christ, he or she was essentially turning his back on Jewish society, on his upbringing, on his traditions, on his family, on the synagogue. He would be excommunicated from Jewish life for that trust in Christ. His own family might even turn on him. If you remember the story in John chapter 9, this happened to the man who was born blind after Jesus gave him his sight and he sided with Jesus. He was excommunicated from Jewish life. He was kicked out of the synagogue. His own parents threw him under the bus. That's how harsh a Jewish convert could, could be treated in the first century. And so it would be important for these new Jewish converts to join in with Paul and Silas, not just for continued spiritual growth and teaching, but just for some stability and, and some help to have a group of people you could count on because they couldn't go back to their families they couldn't go back to the synagogue. And so they joined with Paul and Silas. But we see the Jews weren't the only believers. Luke also writes, of the devout Greeks, a great multitude. If you remember Thessalonica, this city had a, a huge pagan religious culture. But not all the Greeks in the city were polytheistic. Some of them were devout. Some of them had a, a sense of monotheism. They... Uh, they respected the one true God, and so it makes sense that they wouldn't travel to the pagan temples and, and uh, visit these cults, but they might go to the synagogue of the Jews and hear more about the one true God. And so they were there, and they heard Paul and his team preaching and teaching about Jesus, and a lot of these people believed. And then the last group mentioned in verse 4, of the chief women, not a few. I like that phrase, not a few. It means a lot. Not a few. Many of the well-respected, honorable, prominent women believed the gospel and were saved. And so in verse 4 there, we see God's amazing blessing on the work of Paul and his missionary group as they're teaching and preaching. Several different groups of people are believing in Christ. But I want you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9 for just a second. Because we'll notice that there were other groups of people, not just these three groups of people that may or may not have been in the synagogue there. There were other groups of people that believed and were part of this church as well. There were a lot of polytheistic pagans in this city that trusted in Jesus. Look at verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians 1. And Paul's writing the letter and he said, For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you. Listen to this and how ye turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Apparently, there were enough idol worshipers who trusted Christ for Paul to write this. But those idol worshipers wouldn't have been at the synagogue. They wouldn't have been present in those services to hear Paul preach and teach about Jesus. So how do we reconcile this? How did these people hear about Jesus? Well, if you go back to Acts chapter 17, verse 2 tells us that Paul spent three weeks or three Sabbath days in the synagogue teaching the people. 
but he definitely spent a little more time at least in the city than just three weeks. There's a verse in Philippians chapter 4 that mentions that while Paul was in Thessalonica, the Philippians sent uh, help to him more than once. Those cities were at least 100 miles apart, roughly 100 miles. There's almost no way he could have received at least two love offerings from the Philippians within three weeks of leaving Philippi and arriving at Thessalonica. They didn't have FedEx back then. Also, in both letters to the Thessalonians, Paul mentioned that he worked while he was in the city so that he wasn't a burden to those believers. And so he's at least in the city long enough to somewhat establish his trade, which was leather work. He was a tent maker. And so if we sort of piece all this together, what probably happened was that after three Sabbaths, the Jews who were running the synagogue, who did not accept Paul's message, said, you're not welcome back anymore. Three, three strikes and you're out, Paul. We don't want to hear any more of this Jesus of Nazareth being a crucified and resurrected uh, Christ. You don't have any more speaking opportunities here. But after those three weeks, he still spent a little more time in the city, working, staying at a man's house named Jason. If you look down in verse 7, we see that this man named Jason received Paul and his men, which means he welcomed, welcomed them. Uh, in the Roman world, it, it would have been that Jason was Paul's patron. He was taking care of them, similar, similar to how Lydia took Paul and the team in when they were in Philippi. He needed someone to help him and, and welcome him in, welcomed them in. And that's what Jason did in this city. And we don't know exactly how long he stayed. Some suggest a few more weeks. Some suggest a few more months. But can you just imagine someone walking through the marketplace, a customer who's looking at this new booth of, of a leather worker here who's you know, making a tin or whatever it may be that someone asked him to make. And you're new here, right? I haven't seen your booth in the marketplace today. What, what brings you to our city? What do you think Paul said? It was very common, in fact, at that time for there to be deep religious and philosophical discussions at a workshop or in the marketplace. And this gave Paul and his helpers an opportunity to talk to anyone who might come by and talk to them personally about who they were, about why they were in the city. And of course, we know it had everything to do with Jesus Christ. Paul wasn't looking to make money as a tent maker. He was looking to spread the news about Jesus Christ. And so in this, we have a wonderful example. Yes, Paul taught in a more formal setting at the synagogue, which is closer to what we're doing here today. But much of his witnessing and much of his work was what we might call informal. It happened while he was working. It happened in his everyday life. That's when these idol-worshiping pagans would have heard about this who weren't in the synagogue. So I want you to think about this, that Paul's life did not consist of compartments. He wasn't a tent maker during the week and then a missionary on the weekends. He wasn't a tent maker who happened to be a Christian. He was a Christian who just happened to be a tent maker. His relationship with God through Jesus Christ affected every second of his life. And so naturally then in his daily life, he lived for the Lord. He spread the gospel. He witnessed. And that's how a church grew. 
And so for us, don't compartmentalize your life. You're a Christian everywhere you go and in everything you do. If the only time you're serving God is when you're here attending church, something's wrong. You're, you're in the world a lot more than you're here anyway. I'm not implying that church attendance is not important. But realize that God wants to use your everyday life for His glory. Are we willing to take advantage of the opportunities that He gives us? And some of that involves our words and some of that involves our, our actions, our works. Use your words to invite others to church. Don't be shy about expressing how thankful you are for the things God's done for you. Be ready to share the grace of Jesus. Be quick to encourage someone by saying, I'll pray for you. Be there to help someone who's, who's having a tough time. Be that encourager. There's so many ways you can use your words to, to open that door. And in your actions as well. Be kind and generous and patient and loving and all of those things that we're taught to be that mirror the way God treats us. The relationships that we develop with people every day, just the way we treat them and the way we talk to them and, and just those normal interactions, God can use in a great way. Our daily lives are important. The daily life of Paul, and I think Silas and his other men as well, they went a long way in growing this church in Thessalonica. So Paul enjoyed a lot of blessings there. A lot of what we might call success. I don't have a problem using that word here. But when that happens, and when people follow Christ as they should and God's blessing, not everyone in this world is going to be thrilled about that. And that's going to happen in Thessalonica. The gospel success is going to generate a lot of jealousy in the hearts of the Jews that didn't believe. So let's read verse 5 through 8. But the Jews which believed not... Moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren under the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason has received. And these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. That seemed to escalate pretty quickly, didn't it? There's two reasons. First is the envy of the Jews. You notice that phrase in verse 5, moved with envy. This word just describes passion or zeal. It could be good or bad. It could be positive or negative, depending on what you're passionate about. Obviously, in this context, they are, uh, it's a negative jealousy and negative envy. And so those are good words. And as we consider what this led the Jews to do, we need to realize how dangerous jealousy and envy is in our lives. Even though it might begin as an internal feeling, if it's left unchecked, it will lead to external actions. This same word was used to indicate why Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. They were jealous. It's, it's unthinkable to us for 
a, a group of young men to sell their own brother into slavery and then fake his death and give that coat of blood to their father. What in the world would lead people to do that? Jealousy will. Be careful about harboring envy and jealousy towards people. It will lead to unthinkable actions. The jealousy of the Jews in Thessalonica led them to rustle up a mob and start a riot in this city. And they knew just where to find men with this mob mentality. And we see that in verse 5. This is one of my favorite King James expressions, lewd fellows of the baser sort. It's tough to improve upon that. If you're looking for a good fantasy football team name next year, that's a good one. You know, lewd fellows of the baser sort. That's, that strikes fear in, in any opponent, you know. What does it mean, though? Lewd simply means evil or bad. Uh, fellows means men. So these were literally bad men. But the phrase baser sort actually comes from the word for marketplace. If you've ever heard the word agora, it comes from that word. So quite literally, these were evil men of the marketplace. We would call them lazy, good-for-nothing riffraffs. They were bums. They hung around and loitered in the marketplace all day long instead of working. They weren't good men looking for work in the marketplace. Sometimes you could go to the marketplace looking for work. That's not what these men were doing. You could go to the marketplace and shop for your family. That's not what these men were doing. One Lex can use the term wicked loafers. I like that. But still, okay, these are bad men, they're, they're lazy, they're wicked, but still, how did the Jews stir them up into this frenzy? What do they care about the gospel of Jesus Christ? And what do they care about the synagogue of the Jews, for that matter? So what did the Jews say to these people to get them so worked up about Paul and his team? I believe the Jews spun their report in a way that would make these men feel threatened. Say, well, how did they do that? Well, if we understand some of the culture of the Roman world and then in Thessalonica, it will make a lot of sense and just come alive. So remember, these men didn't work. You say, well, how did they survive? They survived through handouts. They survived through assistance. In the Roman world, there was something called sportula which was essentially a handout program to supply people with a little bit of money or a little bit of food. Wealthy people and even government officials would, as one author says, give small sums of money to help the common people with daily living expenses and to purchase entrance into theaters, athletic contests, contests and gladiatorial events. And then in turn, these people that receive the handout would show extreme loyalty to those patrons. They would be uh, praising them almost as gods and show just extreme thankfulness there. Even the emperor did this. He distributed this sportula monthly, the emperor did, uh, and it was usually grain. And it was sort of like one of those contests where you had to be present to win. You actually had to go show up to receive your grain. They didn't deliver it to you. You had to be there. So can you imagine how disruptive that became to the workday? The productivity in the Roman Empire uh, just lessened and lessened as people 
stood around all day waiting for their government handout. Farmers quit farming their land because they realized, I can live off the grain the emperor gives me. Does any of this sound familiar? This wasn't just a problem in ancient Rome. This is a problem in America today. But you know what Paul would tell the Thessalonians in his first letter to them? He said, work with your hands and be dependent on no one. Christians should be willing and thankful to work. It is unbiblical and ungodly to be a lazy loafer depending upon someone else to support you if you can work. We're not talking about people who truly need assistance. We're not talking about people who can't work for whatever reason. The problem is when healthy people are too lazy to work. I'm going to borrow one of my favorite terms in Proverbs from King Solomon again. He called them sluggards. Even in the Old Testament, King Solomon taught us that laziness is unwise. So in Thessalonica, these lazy loafers could hang around the marketplace all day causing trouble because they knew they would still survive because they were given a handout. And the Jews knew that, and so I'm sure they would have spun this to make these men fear that Christianity and these Christians are going to somehow take away your handout. And we'll talk about how in a minute. The handouts in Thessalonica would have largely come from the city rulers. Remember that Thessalonica was not an official Roman colony, but governed by these city rulers. It was still under Roman jurisdiction. They answered to Rome, absolutely. But remember, Thessalonica had these amazing perks of a free city. One of those perks was they could have a group of five or six city rulers govern them. And that's exactly where this mob then takes Jason and these believers to uh, when, they, when they get them out of their house. And if you notice in verse six, through eight, or verse 6 and 8, Luke is very specific in what he calls the rulers of the city. You may have a translation that says city officials. This is from one word. It literally means city ruler. And transliterated, it sounds like politarch. Politarch. This was an extremely rare word in the first century. The only two times it occurs in the New Testament are here in Thessalonica. And for centuries, for centuries, skeptics and critics pointed to Luke using this word to try and disprove him and discredit him that he didn't know what he was talking about. This word was so rare. Nobody called rulers of the city a politarch during those days. Luke, Luke was crazy. But guess what archaeologists have uncovered in Thessalonica over time? At least 19 inscriptions of this very word. Didn't matter how rare the word was. It didn't matter if no other cities called their rulers politarchs. That's exactly what they were called in Thessalonica. And Luke knew that because he was there. And he also knew that because the Holy Spirit's inspiring this. So it doesn't matter even if archaeological evidence doesn't uncover something in the Bible. It's true. But that's just one of those beautiful examples how we can completely trust even the little details in the Word of God. Luke uses this rare word because it was right. 
have confidence in your Bible. So when the mob brings their prisoners to the politarchs, they complained, notice in verse 6, that these people that have turned the world upside down have come here too. Turn the world upside down just means they're causing trouble everywhere they go. These people are the problem. Isn't that a little uh, backwards here? Paul and Jason and his, these Christians haven't done anything. It's the Jews and the mob that are starting the riot. But they're spinning it. And their specific charge in verse 7 is that they do all contrary to the decrees of Caesar. Now, since this was in Thessalonica, this is likely referring to this decree of Caesar. Uh, Caesar. One author says, an oath of loyalty to Caesar in Rome administered by the Politarchs. Remember, the loyalty this city had to Rome was just unwavering because they wanted to maintain that status of a free city. And so people would take these oaths to the emperor and to Rome. And now we have a mob telling the Politarchs, these people are doing contrary to the decrees of Caesar. And the specific charge is they are saying there's another king, Jesus. And the Politarchs would have said, hang on. It just got serious. Those city rulers dare not risk uh, word reaching Rome that in the free city of Thessalonica, they were no longer loyal to Emperor Claudius and the empire, but were now following some new king named Jesus. What do you think Rome would have done? All of those perks as a free city, all those tax exemptions, not having garrisons of Roman soldiers traipsing through your streets. You could kiss those perks goodbye. And so the Politarchs would not risk anything or anyone disrupting their prosperous, peaceful, free city. And so I think what the Jews were able to do here is they spun this in a way to where the Politarchs feared what Rome was going to do. The men of the marketplace feared that they might have to say goodbye to their handout if the Politarchs were unseated. Maybe the Jews feared that this could all come back on them since Paul started in the synagogue. I think that's possible too. Ultimately, their jealousy created a perfect storm here, and they knew exactly how to spin this story and make Paul and Christians seem like the problem, even though they weren't doing anything wrong. And so it's no surprise in verse 8 that when the people heard this and when the rulers heard it, they were all troubled. This is bad news. Thankfully, though, look at verse 9. They do let Jason and the others go after they post some sort of security or bail or some sort of promise. Look in verse 9. And when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. When this happened, though, we need to understand that releasing these men at that time didn't mean it was all fine. It didn't mean it was the end of all this. It was probably just, for the Politarch's perspective, the wise thing to do for the moment while they considered what they really needed to do, you know, officially. And so they did let Jason uh, and these men go. But thankfully, the believers in the city had the wherewithal to send out Paul and Silas under cover of darkness instead of waiting to find out what was going to happen. Look at verse 10 through 15. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night under Berea. 
Notice this. Who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews? Paul just doesn't learn. Verse 11 is awesome. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Therefore, many of them believed. Also of honorable women, which were Greeks, and of men, not a few, which again means a lot. Look at verse 13. But when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached of Paul in Berea, they came thither also and stirred up the people. That's how jealous and hateful the Jews in Thessalonica were, that they would leave Thessalonica and travel to Berea to stir up problem for Paul there. Who's the one causing trouble in all, the, in all of these cities? Was it Paul or is it these unbelieving Jews at this point? Let's look at verse 14 and 15. And then immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go as it were to the sea. But Silas and Timothy abode there still. And they that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens. And receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timothy for to come to him with all speed, they departed. I want to note just two quick things here from these verses. First is the way the Bereans received the teaching of Paul. It is a perfect example of the way to hear the word of God and what to do with it. When they heard Paul's message, they didn't just immediately latch on to it without any consideration, without any study, without any prayer. Nor did they just quickly dismiss it. Oh, we never heard that. No, that's not what I was taught. Right. They looked into the Word of God. And they studied it out for themselves to see if it matched what Paul said. And guess what? When they understood it did, they believed it. No, it wasn't what they were taught. They weren't taught that the Christ would suffer first, just like the Thessalonians weren't. But when you look back at the Old Testament, you can see how it was prophesied and how it fits Jesus. And so they believed, and this is a perfect example for all of us. Please don't ever believe anything just because I say it. And don't dismiss something just because I say it. Take what I say or what any preacher says, and you search the Scripture. You see if it matches the Word of God. If it doesn't, please tell me, because I want to know. I want to learn. If it does, believe it. Believe it. And the second thing I just want to note here in these verses, and it ties in more with our main application today, is, my goodness, in the boldness of Paul, in the face of all this trouble, is just so, so encouraging. He's beaten and imprisoned in Philippi. So what? I'm going to go to Thessalonica and preach the gospel. He has to sneak out of Thessalonica at night. So what? I'll go to Berea and I'll spread the gospel there. The Thessalonian Jews come down to cause trouble in Berea. He has to leave Berea. So what? He's going to go to Athens. And you can read the rest of the chapter. He's just going to continue to spread the gospel of Christ in Athens. Paul and his team faced a lot of trouble for just serving God. None of it was warranted. They weren't doing anything wrong. But society twisted it to make it seem like they were the threat, like they were the problem. But when that happened, Paul remained faithful. He remained persistent. He just kept serving God because he knew the work was too important to let a man-made mob stop it. 
He knew the work was too important and there was far too much at stake to let some sort of government pressure keep him from preaching. Is that not a powerful message for our time when we look around this world and even in our country and see that really nothing's changed? Across the globe, Christians are persecuted. We're presented as the problem even though we're not. And even in our country, which I believe is the greatest country the world's ever seen, there's quickly a growing anti-Christian sentiment. If you don't realize that, you really need to wake up. Our belief in the inspiration of Scripture, our belief in the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, our stances that align with the Bible on things like homosexuality and abortion and those sorts of things make us very unpopular. And while we don't serve God to upset society, if society is upset because we serve God, then so be it. We have to be like Paul and continue to serve God and follow Christ even in the face of adversity and suffering and even if things are spun like we're the problem. It's already happening and it will continue to happen. But we cannot abandon the work of our God and the truth about Jesus Christ no matter what society says about us or no matter what persecution or suffering exists, not as a church, not personally, because there's too much at stake. Because as we witness and we live for the Lord and we preach and we teach the truth about Jesus Christ, some will believe. If you've never believed in Jesus as your Savior, please make that decision today. As the Holy Spirit convicts you, ask God to forgive you of your sins. Trust in Jesus. He will save you. And you will have an eternity of joy and life with Him instead of suffering in hell for rejecting Him. Trust in Jesus. Everything is at stake with that decision. Everything. And let's not be surprised when this world spins the story to make us out to be the bad guys. They've been doing it for thousands of years, right? Pharaoh did it in ancient Egypt. Haman did it in the book of Esther. But do you remember what ultimately happened in Exodus? God delivered his people, didn't he? What happened in the book of Esther? Haman ended up being hung on his own gallows. And the Jewish people were rescued. Jesus warned his disciples about persecution the night that he was betrayed. And he did say this, though. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I've overcome the world. We must be persistent in our service to God, even if we're labeled the problem, because in the end, Jesus Christ is the victor. So stay faithful. Let's stand. Let's bow for a word of prayer as we prepare for an invitation. Father, if there's someone here today who's lost, I pray that this will be the day of their salvation. Father, I pray that you will give us boldness as a church and, and personally to serve you each day, to be a good witness for you, Lord, to love others, to love them enough to tell them the truth, to be good witnesses for you and to just serve you no matter what. We pray for the soon return of our King. It's in his name we pray. Amen.